In this episode, I welcome Alistair Bond, headmaster at Park Hill School and the study school in the UK. In this episode, I discuss leading a school as war breaks out, the importance of happy, confident, curious traits in underpinning future skills, making nature your classroom, and juggling time leading two schools. The listeners are going to find out that when they do their research on you, that you've obviously taught a lot and led a lot in the Middle East. So, you know, between the UAE, you were at Fullmark Dubai, and then you were actually leading a school in Libya when war broke out. How was that? And how did you adapt to such a changing political situation? Oh, golly. Where are we now? How many years on? 10 years, over 10 years. Seems like yesterday. And it also feels like it happened to a completely different person. You have this sort of out-of-body experience. You're making decisions. You're relying on your instincts to do what is the right thing to do. So many aspects, the decisions that had to be taken were straightforward. They kept coming back to what's the right thing to do for the children? What's the right thing to do for colleagues and friends within the school? So yes, an extraordinary time, a wonderful place, beautiful country, full of contradictions. You know, this lovely Italian coastal aspect to Tripoli that you, you felt you're in, in Rome. And then you head inland a little bit and you could imagine you're in Greece with almond groves and olive trees. The most delicious, lush, and juicy oranges I've ever, ever had what I would do right now for, for a, a Libyan orange. And obviously within, within an hour of driving, you're suddenly in the Sahara and that's it for the next 24 hours, driving deep into the Sahara, down into South Libya. The chain of events that happen so, so quickly. One day the school is open, the next day half the school are back. And then within two or three hours, you, you're ringing around parents saying, come and get your children, we're evacuating, you, you need to get out. It's not safe to be in this country. And then hearing yourself say these words to parents and then responding accordingly. And then doing what you think is the right thing by getting teachers out, getting flights sorted out, getting the school closed down, trying to make sure that the school could reopen by, by securing resources, uh, having that strange out-of-body experience of pulling up outside your, your local bakers, there's no bread, and you go into the corner shop and there's no, there's no, no tins, there's no milk, there's no nothing, it's these empty shelves um, that you see in so many films. So contributed to that sense of it's happened to somebody else in the, in, the, in the middle of this strange set and then sitting having done all those things sitting in your in your front room because of the geographical locality to Europe we, we actually got Sky News on our TV so there we were watching Sky News coverage of, of all that was happening literally outside your front door aircraft flying overhead you were seeing on Sky News and gunshots very 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 strange and then, and then seeing there were no road signs or very few road signs and if it was, they're all in Arabic because English was, it was essentially banned. Um, so different shops were given local names that only, only us as local expats would, would recognise. So there's a shop that continually had a Happy New Year sign outside. It's on, on its window, even in the middle of summer. So that was the Happy New Year shop. So to, to see the Happy New Year shop just the day before, I was buying bananas and the bar of Cadbury's. I was sort of ransacked on fire and, and, and full of bullet holes. It was an extraordinary scene. These familiar places suddenly at war. I mean, it must have been absolutely terrifying, absolutely terrifying, just to see something unfold so quickly. Your experiences of working and living abroad are great life experiences. You know, you obviously had a very different experience when you got to the UAE. But with all these independent schools in Middle Eastern countries, you, you would have had to deal with, you know, parents and influencers, whether they're politicians, sheikhs. How do you manage working with and for the sheikhs, the royal families, presidents, do you have to treat them differently? 
think 90% of the cases, they just want to be the dad or the mum. They simply want to be able to enjoy the performance, the Christmas performance. They want to enjoy the you know, National Day celebrations. They don't want to be treated any differently. But there is that lovely balancing act of treating them differently because they are who they are. They are a raw family and they should be treated with uh, respect. Two things I learned very quickly. In Libya, you didn't show wealth because it could be taken off you. So I'd very frequently come across senior members of the, of the Libyan government and you, they wouldn't have the suits and the, the appearance and the attire of someone who was so important. So you learn to simply treat everybody the same, which you should do anyway, regardless of who they are, treat them with dignity. There were various times, certainly in, in Abu Dhabi, where we had a, a number of different members of the royal families of, of each of the seven emirates. They are like any other parent. They simply want your time and you make time for people. Uh, and you make sure you do that. You treat everybody with dignity and respect. You also have to accommodate. I recall there was a time, certainly in Bahrain, where we were sitting by the pool and my wife's phone rang with an unknown number. She had to be teaching the, who is now the king's granddaughter. So even to this day, we don't know how my wife's telephone number was acquired by the king's sister, but we just accept it. And even if it was on a, on a weekend morning, you, just, you speak very pleasantly and politely and, and explain what the homework is for that weekend. Yeah, I mean, f- fantastic stories, fantastic experiences that I'm sure all your parents and, and all your kids at your schools that you're at now would just love to hear because, I mean, people are equal. You know, we're all flesh and blood. We have to treat people equally. You know, we have to teach the kids, the young kids, that everything is, is fair and you've just got to be kind. You lead and manage two schools. Why? <laughs> yes. <laughs> what, why and how did you become to lead two schools? I mean, was one not enough? Was it like, no, this is, this is easy? All sorts of factors came into this one. Park Hill, part of a group of small, or it's a family of independent schools with an emphasis on the word family. We, we were the fourth school to join the, the Inspired Learning Group. Fast forward five years, we're now one and truly into, into double figures. A lot of the work that we've done here at Park Hill in terms of the use of technology, in terms of our philosophy and, and ethos of the school, resonates in all of our sister schools. So when um, the Heads Vacancy came up in the summer, one of our very nearby sister schools, it was a good opportunity. Well, it was seen as a good opportunity by the CEO and by the chair. I take on two schools and we bring together the best practice across those two schools, give the deputy heads and the assistant heads a wonderful opportunity to experience and to really bring that sense of collaboration across not just our two schools, but also across the sort of southwest corner of London that we work in. So a challenge in the very, very best possible sense of the word and a really enjoyable challenge. Two lovely sets of parents, super children, teachers are all wanting the same thing. That's the best for children. So that's very, very straightforward. I, I just encourage and just say yes lots of times. How do you balance your time between each school? So there's no kind of bias towards one. Because I'm not going to ask you, by the way, if you have a favourite. It's like children. You do, but you can never say. <laughs> the approach has been straight down the middle. This is new. I've reached out to a couple of other heads within the Independent Schools Association, for example, to see how they go about managing it. I split the week essentially down the middle. So a full day in each school uh, that incorporates a staff meeting. And then the other three days are then half days in each school, morning or afternoon. The head of a, of a small independent school is a very sort of family pastoral approach. So I really want to make sure that parents can see me, can speak to me about anything that they may wish to. Um, and likewise, colleagues at both schools know that I'll be in school should they need support or I can get around to celebrate what's been going on in classrooms and, and what's going on outside of the classroom. So two and a half days in news. And that must be harder running two small kind of prep schools because 
you know, you are more visible. You know, if you were the executive head or the CEO across two larger schools, you kind of have a, a distance executive strategic role. So that must be harder as well because they, they want more access to a head in a prep school. It's also the rewarding element is, is those lovely conversations with parents get, gaining that lovely insight into the children's needs, into what, what's right for the school, what's best for the school. So, yes, it is demanding. But it's also the fun part of the job is having those conversations, getting to know people, supporting, engaging, doing what's right by the children in, in those schools. I don't see myself as an executive head. I think executive head can imply that distance, can imply that I'm strategy and, I, and I'm removed. And I think when parents subscribe to a school, they're subscribing to the ethos, the atmosphere of the school. It goes without saying, so obviously to say that they also buy into the head. They make that connection. I probably incorrectly say you can do all the research you want as a parent and choosing the right school for your children. But ultimately, it's an emotional instinct. It's a decision that you feel is this school is just feels right for my children. And, and the head's a massive part of that. And it's about making sure that one school doesn't lose that sense of family and the other school benefits from that sort of injection of, of engagement and enthusiasm. And, and, and again, just simply making sure the parents are in, left in no doubt that we're here for children. We're here to do simply what's right by them. Yeah, and I suppose what's quite exciting for the way that you are splitting your time, in any organisation, leadership is about mentoring and actually about allowing those that kind of report into you your senior leaders, your deputies, to step up and grow themselves. So this actually is a positive opportunity to see some really good growth in terms of other, your staff stepping up, taking on a bit more responsibility, showing that leadership, and actually running it because you, know, you have to be the North Star that sets a direction, but your team around you. So that must be really fulfilling for you to see your colleagues that you've got working for you stepping up. One of the dangers of headship is that your, your shadow can obscure the talents around you. I've always aspired to having a very flat structure. Everyone feels that they can contribute, their voice is heard. It's scary letting go, dare I say it. Been at Park Kilner for just over five years, growing the school up, very emotional attachment to the school. So it has been very healthy to take that step aside and say to all my colleagues in, in, in both schools, right, you, you go for it, you, you know, let's, let's go for it. So it's very exciting. And it also gives you an opportunity to grow because you're taking on new challenges, new skills as you take on the leadership of two schools, because they all have probably the same setup, probably the same issues, but it's just doubling it with the, you know, the amount of people, interests, buy-in. So the responsibility does double. So how have you found that balancing you know, your own individual growth? It's fascinating how when you are seeking to ensure effective communication, I think communication is the key thing here, you don't want people to be waiting for you to come into school to make any decision, really. The key areas that we've really enjoyed developing is the use of technology to enhance quality of teaching and to enhance the quality of leadership and management. It's effective and quick communication across both schools. More important are those little conversations that may just take a matter of seconds. Uh, management by walking about, you know, quick pop in to see a lesson, quick chat. You glean that useful, vital information to then help further improve the school. All sorts of strategies that have been evolved over the time. You know, a, a, a daily standing briefing, whether I'm here or the other school for both schools, and an immediate catch-up, little catch-up, and, and a very visible walk around the school, see people engage with the children before heading up and tackling the, sort of the admin or the latest email or, or whatever it may be. I've noticed 
when we were doing some research that you say that children need to be confident, curious and happy. Incidentally, those are the three words I use for how I parent. And, you know, and it's not about academic results because it is a happy, confident child who can become a happy, confident, curious adult is quite rare these days. How did you come to land on those three words and why is that important to you? I really see a unique opportunity when we, when, when we arrived at Park Hill the schools in nursery and pre-prep parents were were very very keen that we grew the school back up to year six where it used to be around about eight or nine years previously um so a wonderful opportunity to do things right to do things you know have a curriculum that's fit for purpose so we, we evolved the school in light of various research papers from bill lucas at, at winchester from the world economic forums report on the future of jobs um heavily influenced by ken robinson um, so we wanted a, a true curriculum, a broad, a true broad balanced curriculum. We were growing the school up to year six. And I think it was when we had our first set of year six children, we engaged with the parents. Right, where are we? Had a, a complete step back of, right, what, what sort of children, you know, um, are coming through our school? What are we doing for our children? What are we doing for one another as, as teachers and colleagues? And so that, that phrase, Park Hill children are confident, curious and happy, actually came from one of our parents. It was a very simple sentence. He just came out with it. And it stuck. It resonated. Yes, this is what we're going setting about to achieve. We want our children, whatever age, whether they're two or 11, to be confident, to be curious, and simply to be happy. Because when we're happy, we do well. We're happy when we're being encouraged, when we're being challenged, uh, when we're being supported, and so on, saying to us, yes, you can do that. So we really felt those three simple words really captured all that we want for our children and all that we want for one another within the school. Both your schools offer great opportunities, and one of those is Forest School. Does a connection to nature help children achieve confidence, curiosity and happiness? Absolutely, absolutely. We've got a number of very highly qualified Forest School leaders over at the study, um, and it's lovely to see them get as excited as the children when they head off into the, head off into the, into the forest, into, into, into the wood. Like all these things, whether it's Forest School, whether it's trips, whether it's visits, Children are given that opportunity to be inquisitive, challenge themselves, to learn about themselves. It was particularly important on, on the back of what we're going through still right now. We recognise the benefits that a lot of educational psychologists were recommending children going outside into the woods, outside into the trees, into nature, simply to get out in the fresh air at the very, very least, but also the, the, the mental health benefits of it. So we see children come to the front very often in those more, in, in those environments when they're using axes or saws and they're creating things, they've got to get that opportunity to be creative and physically creative. And is it hard to, you know, you're obviously in, in, in South West London, is it hard to find green spaces? We're sport, I'm afraid. We're, we are quite literally a two-minute walk from, from Richmond Park here at Park Hill. There isn't a day where the children aren't walking down there, whether it's the nursery or all the way through to year six. And likewise, over at the study, there's a lovely green park, perfect forest area. In terms of immediate day-to-day provision, it's literally on our doorstep. But then both schools also make access, really useful access to where we are physically. So Surrey Hills, we've got Box Hill, we've got Leith Hill just half an hour away. Surrey Hills, we've got the South Downs. We're sport where we are. We're very, very lucky. We read every year that the amount of time that kids spend outside is becoming less and less because they're becoming more and more addicted to screen time. We're going to get onto technology in a bit. But how do we manage that balance? And, you know, what, what job is it of the school to ensure that parents know the importance of getting outside and not just, you know, allowing your, you know, particularly in a prep school, 
you know, these are kids up to the age of 11 or 12. They need the outside space. They need to learn to be a kid and to play. But parenting, it's 24-7, it feels like, and it's busy. It's sometimes easier just to kind of let my child be on there because they're quiet and becomes parenting by proxy. What duty is it of the school to ensure that kids get outside and we encourage parents to do that? Setting that example. So we analysed our normal week and looked at how much time was being spent outside. Now, whether that was break times, whether it's for games, whether it was for forest school, adventure school, whatever it may be. We had the children outdoors for around about 35% of the week. And obviously during that time, yes, there'll be occasions when the children are using the devices to analyse the striking of the hockey ball, whatever it may be. But that time is very much outdoors. It's very much weaving different elements across the curriculum into that, uh, into that time. A lot of our parents, again, at both schools, they, they understand our philosophy of enjoying the outdoor provision. So we've got a captive audience, really. We do have a very straightforward policy. That when you come to get your children, put your phone in your pocket, put your phone away, give them your time, give them what they, you know, that they're excited to see you and share with them what they've been doing that day. We also have a healthy range of extracurricular activities that are outside, everything from mountain biking through to climbing. And then likewise with the, with the trips and residential experiences. We've got a super boarding school all through boarding school 2 to 18 up in Suffolk that we've been using for our outdoor residential centre. So taking groups of children up there and joining the Suffolk coast, whether it's simple beach activities all the way through to the more adventurous raft building and so on. So it's about making sure that they have simply have a really broad, balanced curriculum and celebrating their time being physically active, being creative. I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. Talk a lot around future school thinking and see you've reformed your curriculum around future skills. What led you to go down this route? It was 2016 that I, that I first came across the World Economic Forum's report on the future of jobs. I'd felt for some time that there was an over-reliance perhaps on possibly within the independent sector about what we regard as traditional skills and a traditional approach to education. We hear the word traditional an awful lot. And I think it's a, it's, it's a whilst I appreciate the word, you know, the importance of tradition, actually the tradition of independent schools should be that they are preparing children to be happy, successful, and sort of thrive in their, in their chosen careers, the future careers. So within that report, it basically says that we're, we're at the start of the fourth industrial revolution. Children, our children leaving school would have four or five different careers. So whilst the academic element is very, very important, as important are the skills and abilities that children need in order, that we all need, in order to thrive in those four or five different careers. So it's that critical thinking, it's that cognitive flexibility, the communication, the collaboration, and the confident application of technology to solve problems. And it really captured our imagination. That report since been updated in 2018, 2020, and it's still saying the same thing. It is about making sure that the children who leave education, leave school, have that toolkit of critical thinking, contemplative, the ability to collaborate and communicate, and to simply have that ability to engage with people and leave that person feeling really good about themselves. So basic human skills, as well as the academic side of things. We have lots of conversations here with parents who are senior HR directors. They are all saying the same thing. They're looking for people who are engaging looking for people who have that lovely character about them, less so the first from Oxford or Cambridge, more about those people who have something about them and can engage and interact in a, in a, on a human level. 
You mentioned the World Economic Forum in terms of the inspiration or the spark that led you to think that we need to be doing more around future skills. They obviously update what employers are looking for every five years, and they've obviously launched their released a new one last year. How do you, as a head, make sure that you're adapting and ensuring that what you're doing is still going to be relevant? Because that's the difficulty, right? It's constantly changing. And if we kind of set ourselves and go, look, we're just going to be what they're saying, we're going to be in five years' time. When we get to five years, do we just carry on being the same? How do you manage a constant state of change without it being kind of unnerving for your parents and even your teachers? There's a wonderful book called the restless school and I've always I've always struggled with the word restless you don't want a restless school you want a happy school that's looking to continually improve and continually involve I'd like to think that at both schools that there is that ethos of well none of us are experts we can learn as much from our children as they can from us the approach in education should be a case of opening those doors and engaging those encouraging those children well what do you think how do we get to this outcome you're still obviously influencing the, you know, through learning objectives where you want the children to go. But the route to get there is a lot more open than I think than it was when, certainly when I went to school. So it's this natural humility of, right, we want to learn more. We want to engage. Uh, we involve our parents with that. So we have a wonderful scheme, Virgin Money, you give each child five pounds to create their own business. And this is a perfect opportunity. We've got some very interesting and, and uh, very influential parents at both schools to engage with those parents to come and work with those children, help them with their businesses, help them with the accounting, the marketing, the distribution, the market research, to gain these important insights. And its basic level is simply a humility or humble approach of, right, we're all learning, we're all wanting to do the best. We're naturally supported. Obviously, being an Apple Distinguished School, we get a lot of support, a lot of professional development, access to really, really creative thinkers within the education world, um, not just here in the UK. We have a, a, a program across the school where we're sharing best practice. We have a program across our group of schools, sharing or family of schools, sharing best practice. So there's this constant enthusiasm, this constant desire to learn more, to refine lessons, to improve lessons. And that comes from across the school, you know, with the, the people who join us understand this and get this and enjoy that opportunity to go well I'm going to try that and just keeping a constant eye on the wonderful world of Twitter which is by far and away the best source of professional development out there you know 10 seconds or 10 minutes spent on Twitter you can learn so much and you make contact with so many different people. Alistair it's been a real blast it's been great catching up I can't believe you're back in in the UK um, because I think the last time I saw you was in the sun. It was in the desert yes. It was in the desert but I'm really grateful and really best of luck with everything you're doing. Thank you, Simon. Really good to see you again. I'm still working on our marketing department to, uh, uh, to, have, to have a website and, and social media with you. So I'll, I'll keep chipping away at them. You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.